It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 410 for September 14th, 2014. This week, if you remember using PaintShop Pro, now's the time to consider what the latest version can offer. Passwords may be the best first line of defense, but multi-factor passwords are even better. In short circuits, Apple's new phone and watch are cool, but this week Apple unveiled something even better. Amazon drops the price of its Fire Phones to 99 cents, and some think that's overpriced. And the Internet's slowdown day generated a lot of messages, but the FCC will probably ignore them. Remember PaintShop Pro? Maybe you thought it no longer exists, but that's wrong. Corel has released PaintShop Pro X7 and PaintShop Pro X7 Ultimate with extensive changes to the user interface. Corel also says brush performance is 30% better, and support for 64-bit architecture allows fast performance with large images. PaintShop Pro has been around for a long time. It was originally published by Jask Software Corporation, and Corel purchased the company in 2004. Jask was located in Eden Prairie, Minnesota. Corel maintained that office until 2007, when development was moved to California and China. Corel's offices are in Ottawa. The original version was released in 1992 for Windows 3.1. There's a new shape and text cutter tool that I'll describe in more detail. The tool allows the user to clip a background image so that it fits within a shape. A new smart edge brush option controls placement of pixels when you're painting around objects. PaintShop Pro X7 has also added support for what's called sidecar files that hold XMP data for raw images. That means the changes made in Photoshop Pro will be recognized in other programs such as Adobe Lightroom. The X7 Ultimate version includes software from other vendors. Realusion Face Filter 3, perfectly clear by authentic imaging, and a variety of brushes, textures, and royalty-free backgrounds. The X7 interface, whether regular or ultimate, offers three primary panels, Manage, Adjust, and Edit. The Manage panel is where you'll start. This is where you import images, store them, tag them, and rate them. The thumbnail images can be resized at any time from relatively small to very large. There's also a wealth of information about each image in a panel on the right. This includes information about the camera and lens used to create the picture, the various settings, ISO speed, shutter speed, f-stop, focal length, white balance, file type, exposure overrides, things like that. The EXIF and IPTC values are displayed, and you can add information about people and places on your own. When you select the Adjust tab, information in the left and right panels change. The right panel offers a variety of instant effects that can be applied immediately. These effects can be stacked so that multiple effects can be added to a single image. When you save the resulting file, it will be given a new name so the original file remains unchanged. That's important. The panel on the left has nine types of adjustments that can be applied to the image you're working on. These include a panel for crop, rotate, and red-eye adjustments, 
a panel for overall brightness and saturation as well as highlights and shadow adjustments. A third panel takes care of white balance and tint. Fourth takes care of brightness and contrast. On the fifth panel, there's a setting called Fill Light. That's essentially a gamma modification and clarity. On panel six, Vibrancy, which affects the strength of colors. Local Tone Mapping is on panel seven. It's used to adjust the image sharpness. On panel eight, there's a high pass sharpen filter that has radius and strength settings and the blending mode, which affects how the change is applied to the image. And on number nine, digital noise removal and sharpening. You'll see an example image on the TechBiter Worldwide website in which I boosted the local tone mapping a bit to improve the sharpness just slightly. Although a lot can be done with just these controls, the still more powerful tab is called Edit, where all of these adjustments are possible and more, a lot more. If the image you're working on is a camera raw file, you'll be given the opportunity to examine the histogram and make some basic adjustments to brightness, saturation, shadows, and white balance before opening it. I was working with a picture of a cheetah from the Columbus Zoo. I increased the color saturation a bit to make the colors more vibrant and then decided to use a feature that's not included in most competing products and is new in this version of PaintShop Pro. I wanted to create text with letters that contained the cheetah's pattern and colors. So after selecting a typeface with thick letters, I sized the text so that it fit over the cheetah's fur. The next step, with the text tool selected and the text cursor anywhere in the word, involves clicking the text cutter icon in the tool presets. And you'll see the result on the TechBiter Worldwide website. The bottom line for Corel PaintShop Pro X7, five cats, cool new features make PaintShop Pro X7 well worth looking at. The program costs $80, the ultimate version $100. If you have a previous version, upgrades are priced at $60 and $80 respectively. An enhanced user interface, support for 64-bit processors, new features, and faster operation all make PaintShop Pro X7 a contender for digital photography fans. New support for sidecar files and complete camera raw handling make things even better. You'll find additional details on the Corel PaintShop Pro website. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. You may have heard about two-factor authentication or multi-factor authentication. Maybe you're wondering if you should be using it. Is it more secure or just a bothersome extra step? With the increasing number of usernames and passwords that have been stolen in the past year or so, you might be thinking about enabling two-factor authentication for accounts that offer it. Or maybe you've just heard the term and wonder what the heck it is. If your accounts have a username and a password, you're using single-factor authentication. The two-factor process adds a second level of authentication to an account login. In addition to your username and password, two-factor authentication schemes typically require something you know, that would be a PIN or a second password, for example, something you have, that could be a security fob or an ATM card or a mobile phone, or something unique to your body, a fingerprint, an eye scan, or a voice print. 
There's no question that two-factor authentication makes the login process more cumbersome because you need to provide what amounts to two forms of identification, and one of those should be out of band. And that simply means that the method used to provide the extra information isn't linked to the method that you used to provide your username and password. Entering a code that the service sends to your cell phone, for example, or a series of numbers that change every 60 seconds from a security fob. And despite the extra effort required, two-factor authentication does not ensure absolute security. In the security business, absolute is a no-no. It's a word you don't use. It's a nonsense term. That said, adding the complexity of a two-factor authentication process automatically takes the bottom feeder crooks out of the game and limits the pool of potential attackers. Persistent crooks could steal a physical device. Numerous books and movies have plots that involve thieves stealing a person's fingerprints, or their entire fingers, to hack a biometric system. Sufficiently talented thieves could insert themselves at a location between you and the protected resource so that they can then grab the authentication token that's intended for your computer. And sometimes techniques that have been put into place to help users can also help crooks, Although many of the largest holes have been patched in various companies' password recovery processes, it is still possible for someone who knows enough about you to recover your password. The biometric option is the most secure option now. Even though costs are dropping, biometric authentication is still too expensive for most systems, though. Besides making systems more secure, biometrics could make recovery easier in the event that the user misplaces a portable device or loses the device to a thief. The second most secure option uses a device that plugs into a USB port on the device or displays a code that changes frequently. In the case of such a device as an RSA fob, the number that the user must enter is made up of parts, a prefix that the user has to change every 30 to 45 days, and a six-digit code that changes every 60 seconds from the fob's display. Devices such as this usually contain an accurate time source so that the authentication server can synchronize with the fob even though no connection exists. To account for minor time shifts over the life of the device, the authentication server will typically accept as correct either the current or immediately previous code or the next code in the sequence. The display fob needs to include some amount of internal encryption, of course, to reduce the ability of a thief to disassemble the unit and steal the numbers. Magnetic striped cards are still used in some cases, but the vulnerability of these cards has been illustrated clearly and frequently. As a result, these cards have been discontinued by banks in most of Europe and will be eliminated in U.S. banks over the next several years. They may still be used in other settings, and some new card readers can make existing cards more secure by analyzing and recording each use of the card on the card itself. Smart cards may serve multiple purposes, credit card, ID card, access card, and network authentication. In a corporate environment, these smart cards could be used to provide access to specific physical locations within an office and then be used with a card reader to give the user access to a computer. The primary drawbacks to many of the multi-factor authentication systems involve users' inability to keep track of hardware tokens or USB plugs. Multi-factor authentication increases support costs, and if a hardware device is used, it also increases equipment costs. 
Whether the increased security is worth the extra costs will depend to some extent on what is being protected and from whom. Except for banking and some government operations, multi-factor authentication isn't yet common. Increasingly, though, services for consumers are providing at least two-factor authentication. These include services operated by Apple, Dropbox, Google, LastPass, LinkedIn, Microsoft, PayPal, Tumblr, Twitter, Yahoo, those are the big ones, and lots of others. Typically, setting up two-step authentication is relatively easy, and it involves visiting a settings panel, finding a security link, and modifying a selector there. short circuits, Apple introduced a new watch and an upgraded iPhone this week. They got most of the attention, but the real bombshell from Apple is a new payment method that has the potential to virtually eliminate credit cards. Credit cards are inherently lacking in security, and Apple's new Apple Pay, not, I note, iPay, could change things quite a bit. At first glance, it would seem not to be very secure. The user waves an Apple device at a payment device, enters a validation code of some sort, and the payment is made. What happens if the Apple device is lost or stolen? Well, the answer is easy. Because the finder or the thief won't have the appropriate validation code, the device can't be used for payments. And for extra security, the user simply turns off the service for that device, and that's it. No need to replace credit cards or do anything else other than replace the phone. That's because the credit card information isn't stored in the phone. When you make a payment, the Apple device will contact your bank and obtain a token. The token will then be passed to the store's payment device. That token is then presented to the bank for payment. Tokens can be used only once, and nobody but you and your bank need to know your credit card number. That alone removes a large part of the risk. Even if a thief gains access to the payment processing system at a store, the only information passing through that system is the single-use token. And once the token has been processed by the store, it would no longer have any value to the thief. Stores would be expected to process the tokens immediately, just as they do with other payment methods. Get your Amazon Fire Phone, just 99 cents. To say that the Amazon Fire hasn't sold very well is rather like saying the Titanic's initial voyage experienced some minor problems with that iceberg in the middle of the ocean. In an effort to sell the things, Amazon has dropped the price from $199 to 99 cents. You still have to take a two-year contract with AT&T, so even 99 cents might not be a great deal. Europeans don't get the full discount, though. They have to pay one full euro, and they also have to take a two-year contract with a service provider. But wait, there is more. You also get a year's worth of Amazon Prime, regularly $99. Well, maybe now you're talking. That might make the deal workable. 
And consider this, you would be the owner of a unique phone. After all, it's believed that only about 35,000 Fire Phones have been sold. Comments online, though, have not been kind, with no small number of people saying that the Fire would be worth 99 cents, only if it came with a year's worth of Amazon Prime and no service contract requirements. The Fire fiasco should be a big embarrassment for Amazon. The phone was released in late July after thousands of employees worked on it over a four-year period. The phone was expected to sell one or two million units in the first year, not 35,000. Amazon customer reviews of the phone are about uniformly divided between four- and five-star ratings and one- and two-star ratings. The most savage of the reviews seem to come from people who say that they generally like Amazon products or had great expectations that simply weren't realized. More than 25% of those who rated the phone gave it just one star. If you visited any websites on Wednesday of this past week, you may have seen a loading symbol frequently. Sites hadn't actually been slowed, but many of the larger players in providing Internet content were trying to raise awareness of what could happen if the Federal Communications Commission approves creation of fast lanes. FCC Chairman Tom Wheeler has adamantly said that the agency will never allow slow lanes without seeming to realize that establishment of fast lanes means the rest of the Internet would be in de facto slow lanes. The result? Well, the event resulted in more than 2 million email messages and more than 300,000 calls to Congress. Another 723,000 pro-net neutrality comments were filed on the FCC's website, and that caused the site to fail once again. To say that the net neutrality tag on Twitter was busy might be considered an understatement. Overall, nearly 5 million comments have been filed with the FCC. One of the event organizers, Free Press Action Fund President and CEO Craig Aaron, said Internet users spoke out loud and clear on Wednesday. They're united against FCC Chairman Tom Wheeler's plan to allow fast and slow lanes on the Internet. Netflix has been a proponent of net neutrality for a long time because it doesn't want to pay tolls to broadband providers so that its video streams will be delivered smoothly. After sitting on the sidelines for a long time, Google finally expressed support for the net neutrality concept this week. In my opinion, it's about time. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.